All right, guys, as you know, we are in the third episode or um, just section of this series. And, and I'm going to rely heavily on a couple that we did earlier in both 2021 and 2022 on metabolism, because in this particular um, part of our discussion, I want to move into just how metabolism works, because I, I think there is still a lot of misunderstanding or wrongly placed emphasis on we just think about calories in, we think about exercise, we think about body fat and how we look. And metabolism is, is the collective amount of energy we're processing in all of the tens of trillions of cells in our body for just sheer single cell survival. So your body, biology, nature, Nobody cares how you look. Nobody cares or wants to consider or change how many calories you're using or not. It's just all about conservation of energy and survival. But there are things to know about all of these processes and how we can at least come to understand what to expect when it comes to dieting and, and attempted body composition change and all that. But if you remember, we started this series because uh, we were proposed a question about an author who is, uh, what did I say, uh, an evolutionary anthropologist who happens to have a strong interest in metabolism and how that looks in the wild, different cultures, especially working with uh, Tanzanian tribal groups and comparing them to modern Westerners and so forth. And he drew some conclusions that I thought were very good in one context, but then were just not quite complete in another. And so today we're going to come full circle to that. One of the things I am not going to do, as Kevin and I were just talking about, is, is get too deep into the biochemistry, but kind of we have to. So I'm going to read you a couple things uh, and, and then try to explain them a little bit, but we're going to breeze through it. So, so energy. Mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation is programmed to set and maintain metabolic homeostasis. Just that sentence alone, you should be like, ooh, this is why I hate chemistry. Uh, this is accomplished through an intrinsic program that determines the, the metabolic uh, ATP, ADP, phosphorylic uh, interactions where the concentration of inorganic phosphate it maintains through its bidirectional sensory signaling control network, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to show you a picture of at least one of the energy systems our body uses, which this particular author says, or at least he proposes, is central to metabolism because we have anaerobic, aerobic, glycolytic energy systems. Uh, we can use carbs or glucose for energy. We can liberate fat and use fatty acids for energy. We can go into oxygen debt and so forth. Uh, but he maintains that 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 this phosphorylation is the central hub. He calls it like a central processing unit of all of metabolism. And he makes that contention, matter of fact, has written an entire book about this textbook, uh, because metabolism is finely tuned in that very next sentence to better than one part in 10 to the to the ninth power. And this goes back to that uh, anthropologist who claimed that metabolism is so homeostatically governed. But again, I think he makes the application that it's across the board. My lifestyle compared to a tribal Tanzanian, compared to you, compared to somebody else, may be entirely different. 
And though our genetics are incredibly similar because we're all 21st century homo sapiens, the daily context and daily use of energy and daily composition of, of just our, our body chemistry is very different. So you have to put that in, a, in its own entire category. But what I wanted you to see is, first of all, without even trying to understand it, unless you want to look some of this stuff up, how many complex systems there are that tie into metabolism, and yet researchers like this really do put all of these pieces down into the pathways and, and what's impacting what, uh, as again, if you guys were here and you heard Kevin and I talking before we started recording, uh, it's just stratified in so many different dimensions. It's not just a binary this, then this, then this, then this. There are all kinds of processes happening all over the body all at once, signals triggering one to the other. Uh, sometimes, for example, in some of your cells, you can be storing body fat while simultaneously other cells are losing body fat or liberating body fat. And so just completely, completely on the fly in terms of how much is going on all at once. So cells are complex machines that require thousands of different metabolites and enzymes working together toward a common goal of survival and growth. DNA contains the blueprint for the parts of the system, but in living cells, metabolism has to respond constantly and rapidly to changes in the cellular environment. These metabolic responses occur in seconds to minutes for faster than information encoded in the DNA can be read far faster than can be read and implemented. Real-time control of metabolism requires a central processor unit, a metabolic unit that is programmed with the appropriate homeostatic set point and connected to the rest of the metabolism through a network of regulatory pathways through which it maintains that set point. In the simplest sense, this CPU is similar to the central thermostat house. Metabolism is very complex. However, in the more complex the system, the greater the need for a central processor. So he goes, goes on to say that it's this oxidative phosphorylation that, that is really controlling everything, which I'm not going to get into except with this little brief picture that I have for you. Um, what, I, what I want you to see through that is, once again, all of this is happening, as he just said, so quickly and so simultaneously that you deciding, hey, I'm going to go get on the step mill for 20 minutes and I'm going to lose body fat and I'm going to eat this many calories and therefore I'm going to control my my destiny in, in terms of body fat loss and what the scale says tomorrow morning. And yet as a coach like myself, working with thousands of clients over decades, you just see that nothing is ever that linear in what's happening in the moment or even on a chart of progress. And, and just this many, this many pieces of the puzzle are, are spinning at once. So the, the reason it's so precise, one part in 10 to the ninth power, imagine with somewhere between 40 and 100 trillion cells in your body. And again, your body doesn't predict things. My body didn't quote, know, I was going to move from standing to sitting, sitting to standing, to wildly gesticulating and talking, energy balance changing all the time. And what if all of a sudden it's like, I'm just cruising along and I pass out or my energy levels are up and down, up and down, up and down, second by second. That's just how fast your body has to respond to homeostatic control of your metabolism. So evolution has programmed it to be that finite so it can control how we use and and how we distribute energy at any given time 
Uh, in living organisms, DNA in epigenetic systems contain the, form the information required to construct the parts and guide the assembly. Life, however, requires a metabolic central processing unit programmed to maintain metabolic homeostasis through an integrated control network. The CPU for cellular metabolism is a metabolic component that receives sensory input from all the different metabolic pathways of the cell. It integrates this information, compares it with the programmed set points, and generates outgoing control signals that increase or decrease the activity of the individual components of metabolism to maintain homeostasis. So again, just, just consider how much really has to happen. And here's, this isn't the picture I was talking about, but this just shows of all of the different energy systems working at once. And remember, he said thousands and thousands of components when you get down to every single substrate. This just shows that this uh, oxidative phosphorylation is kind of at the central hub, or maybe you could say the, the final domino. You know, if you look over here, here's breathing, cardiac output, oxygen sensing. So now you're talking about aerobic energy systems over here, glycolysis. So you're talking about glucose and AMP kinase. And then over here, lipid metabolism. So now you're into more uh, of the long-term energy use, fatty acids being liberated. But this one central processing unit is, is monitoring and to some degree signaling to control the rate at which you're using uh, information and so forth or energy. So as he says, in this paper, I will summarize evidence that the mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation is the CPU that sets and regulates metabolic homeostasis in higher organisms. Um, once again, though, and we're getting ready to kind of finish this point, I'm not telling you this because I think it's important for you to know. I just want you to be overwhelmed with the thought of how much your body is processing and monitoring at any given time and how difficult it is therefore to quote trick as you'll hear people say or reset your genetics you hear people all the time say well matter of fact i literally just talked to another coach is one of my coach's clients and you know she was hearing stuff probably on tiktok or something about you know well you need to do this to reset your metabolism you need to do this to reset that i'm like that's not how that works you don't reset anything that is genetically programmed like that but anyway, uh, the program for the homeostatic set point, as I, I wanted you to see just in this particular paper, um, you know, some of the headings here about some of the descriptions that we're going to describe. So the homeostatic set point, the amount of calories my body uses per day, because the basal metabolic rate is still the dominant portion of energy we'll ever use in a single day what my body is just simply programmed to use because my heart beats at a certain pace. I have a certain body shape and size, a certain amount of lean body mass, all of that genetically determined. I'm not going to suddenly manipulate a couple of variables that I can. And now my body is burning twice the amount of calories per day at rest. Just not going to happen. Metabolic set point is metabolic set point. That's just a reading of your genetics. But, and here's, here comes one of my, counters to the original book we were talking about, fine-tuning the set point through environmental or epigenetic demand is possible. And that gets into our literal actions. H how is my non-exercise activity going to be, my, my daily movements? How, how much does my exercise impact what I do and so forth? That fine-tuning is acute. It's what I do, what I choose to eat today, 
am I getting enough protein? Am I, you know, keeping my fat intake low enough to make sure my demands are, are changing and more optimized for fat loss, caloric, just calorie deficit and so forth. <clears throat> All of those things matter acutely. And then over time, if given enough pressure, because perhaps calorie deficits are low enough, long enough, so we could be talking about very low calorie diets, medically very low calorie diets, uh, that then can start to chronically suppress your metabolism. Uh, that would be considered fine tuning or even an epigenetic demand. Uh, so, so we're gonna go through some of those things, but first, once, once I get through the, this conclusion, I wanna touch on some of the things we've already talked about in some very key research reviews. And if you could go back to our YouTube channel at some point and you're you're just kind of looking around, we're, we're closing in on a hundred research reviews and you can just topically see, well, that one looks interesting and so forth. I'm gonna point out some that I think are, are very important. So concluding comments from this particular, just physiological view of metabolism, Control of metabolism through oxidative phosphorylation is an example of, of extraordinary, elegant, and robust engineering. Oxidative phosphorylation is precise better than one part in 10 to the ninth power. The response time is less than a second. Rapid and large transients in ATP demands are easily accommodated and it can withstand brief periods of severe metabolic displacements. So let me, let me get over here. Oh man, did I not even put in that particular... Thing. Shoot. Well, here's, you know what I did forget? I, I have it up on my other screen, my other computer. The picture I was going to show, and don't worry about looking this up, Kevin, but um, phosphoric, I knew you would. <laughs> phosphorylation. What, what is it? Because like, he keeps using that, that phrase, metabolic oxidative phosphorylation. Um, the, the key way we use most of our energy is ATP, adenosine triphosphate, donating a phosphate group to a protein, to a molecule, and then it becomes ADP, adenosine diphosphate. And it's this cycle, kind of like the Krebs cycle. It's just like, it, it has three phosphates and it donates one and then resynthesizes another one and gives that one away. And then it, it can resynthesize. And you know, if, if, if your body decides that that cell or that protein didn't, doesn't need that phosphate group any longer, then we, we pull that one back. So that's phosphorylation and dephosphorylation. Anyway, I just wanted to show you th that or tell you that because it's incredibly sophisticated as this author said, but also when you look at it mechanistically, it's also incredibly simple and it makes total sense how your body does this with the tiniest molecules you can imagine in your body. But all of that behind us now, that's, that's just, as I said, I, I wanted that to be intentionally not difficult to understand, but I wanted you to be impressed with how sophisticated your body is and the reason you have to have such a fine-tuned metabolism so your energy needs just simply, or not, sorry, sorry, as your energy needs fluctuate wildly, you keep working and thinking and staying conscious seamlessly. So that's why it is so genetically deterministic and not something we can change and manipulate our metabolic set point and that sort of thing. The biggest point there is you simply have to know your metabolism. You have to know what the constraints are between full optimization. How do I have the fastest, best functioning, healthy metabolism, not being unduly suppressed through bad dieting methodology and so forth. 
And then that's just me. I, I now understand my genetics and I know the highs and lows. I know how, how to find the, the spot I want to be at. So this is one of our, our previous research reviews, the science of metabolic adaptation. And um, th this was the actual study that we looked at, metabolic and behavioral compensations in response to caloric restriction. So I want to go through uh, some findings. If this is something that interests you, we did a whole hour on this and you can go back and watch it. But I, I wanted to show you some of the conclusions. So daily energy expenditure has three major components. So first, keyword, daily energy expenditure. What is my metabolism going to require today? What's my energy output? Resting metabolic rate, like I said, basal metabolic rate, 1,000% genetic. The thermic effect of food, which is the lowest, that's just how much it costs calorically to digest the food I'm eating. And then the energy cost of physical activity. That's where we can have the most impact. Respiratory chambers enable the measurement of sleeping metabolic rate, the energy cost of arousal, thermic effect of food, and the cost of spontaneous physical activity. However, the confined space, that's, that's not all very important. Let me skip over here. So this particular study that we're not going to completely review, but we did in the prior, uh, they looked at four different groups and they were trying to test can we actually change metabolism or maybe better said, is there a way to, to, to achieve a calorie deficit that gives us the most fat loss and or supports our metabolism health the best? Make sure we don't suppress the metabolism further than we have to. So they had a control group. So just energy neutral. Then they had a calorie restricted group. So 25% drop in calories. Then they did the calorie restriction plus exercise. So 12.5% of their calorie reduction was through restriction of food, 12.5% by increased expenditure, increased exercise. So same 25% restriction. One group's diet alone. One group is, is diet and exercise. And then they threw in a, a low calorie diet, not a very low calorie diet, but an average of about 900 calories uh, you know, to, to, to achieve body weight reduction of about 15% and then maintenance. So kind of how they did this it ended up being a six month study. Um, all meals were provided, but it was still self-reported. We've talked about that ad nauseum. Uh, the exercise was actually supervised for the people who were in that exercise group. So they did post-intervention body comp analysis, metabolic cart testing. Then they did it at three months and at six months and they did it by DEXA scanning. And I, I may be wrong, but I think they even did it, you know, with some latency period after the fact. So again, four groups, energy neutral, a, a low, low calorie deficit. And then in the middle, the, the, what the two real test groups were, were can we or should we just diet alone or do diet and exercise? And the reason I picked out this study to include in this final series uh, session is the book we were reviewing uh, by Dr. Ponser Byrne, which as an evolutionary anthropologist, he was he made the comment several times. And I and I I I think given a serious conversation, he would probably understand the differences I'm trying to elucidate. But he said basically, because metabolism is so homeostatically driven, don't even try to do anything except diet. He says several, several times. You can exercise, which is great. Movement is good. It's good for a lot of reasons, but it's not good for weight loss. 
if you try to use it for weight loss, it's a waste of time because your body will metabolically self-regulate back to its homeostasis. And so you really just need to do it through diet alone. That, that perception and that premise is, is so centrally wrong because he misses the point that whether we're doing this just through calorie restriction or calorie restriction and expenditure, first of all, he's right that homeostasis is the central governing process where our body wants to you know, bring the highs down and bring the lows up and keep us very stable. Uh, we look for secondary and, and tertiary levels of, of energy and substrates to, you know, through um, gluconeogenesis and lipolysis and so forth to create energy. But it's just acute versus chronic, not food deficit versus exercise, because your body is going to try to auto-regulate either way. He makes the assumption, because he's, I think, an anthropologist, that because in the wild, when you see people who do it one way or the other, this group seems to be the most sustainable. Or as he says regarding the Tanzanian tribe that he studied, they are so much more active, so much more active because they're walking, they're hunters and gatherers. They spend five hours a day walking and yet they don't really require more energy than we do their metabolic rates are the same as us Westerners sitting on the couch with our iPhones in our hands. And based on that comparison, he said, therefore, extra exercise doesn't work. What he failed to realize is those people have such lower resting heart rates, their body compositions are better. They're not eating any processed food. They're so physically active, intentionally, plus non-exercise activity that they just, they are so metabolically efficient that to his point, their bodies are regulating to conserve energy, but that's not the point. They're just simply that active. I, I don't know. It, it, was, it was such a weird thing to see that premise that is so clearly, I don't know if I should say upside down, but it just misses a glaring point. So back to this, back to this. Uh, in this if you can see my cursor here, uh, at the three-month mark and the six-month mark, control group, this is just weight loss in kilograms. Uh, so the control group, you know, they actually lost about a, a pound or a kilogram, maybe two pounds, just because they were in this study. They, they weren't even supposed to be dieting. So yay, control group. Um, the control group plus exercise plus or compared to the calorie restricted, I'm sorry, not control group, the calorie restricted plus exercise compared to the calorie restricted, it's almost identical at the six month mark. I mean, they this was like 10% and 10.4%. But the difference is the exercise group kept a lot more lean body mass. This black uh, section at the end of the, the chart here, the, the bar uh, is, is uh, muscle mass lost. The low calorie diet, they lost <clears throat> more, but they also lost the most muscle mass. So uh, the, the biggest thing to understand here, if you are considering, okay, what is, this doesn't really address metabolism. I'm going to get to that on the next chart is, you know, it, it, it's the total energy balance. It, whether I'm calorie restricted only or calorie restricting less 
and exercising more. It's the total calorie restriction that gets you there, period. Like, take your pick. You get to pick. But when you add an exercise, you preserve more lean body mass. Now, when you look at metabolism, and this is over the course of six months, uh, they have three months and six months here again. Um, look up here at the, well, let's, let's go down here at the low calorie diet first. They have the most uh, metabolic disruption. So up to 400 and uh, maybe, maybe 500 calories, their metabolic rates, if you could call three months acute, uh, were, were down. Like they literally downshifted that much. So if you started out in a 500 calorie day deficit by month three, you would have to reduce another 500 calories just to sustain that. And, and I'm sorry, these guys, it was, they were only eating like 860 calories. So it was even more than a, than that deficit in the beginning, but you can see it down-regulated by about 500. Uh, in a calorie restriction alone, it dropped down to about 350 or so. Um, and so again, you're suffering from metabolic suppression here. Look at the calorie restriction plus exercise. Oh, golly gee, even in a 500 calorie day deficit or around a 25% calorie reduction, look who doesn't have any reduction in their metabolism. Matter of fact, at six months, it's even climbing a little bit. And also from three to six month marks in all categories, look at how the body is starting to come back a little bit. So even with nothing changed, Again, self-reported study, so we can't be too dogmatic. But it seems like the body is trying to move back to its homeostatic balance. So again, genetics first, total calorie deficit second. But then over the long term, you're going to do better, counter to what Dr. Ponser asserted, with adding exercise. Don't think exercise has nothing to do with it. You're going to retain more lean body mass, more metabolically active tissue, and you're going to avoid this metabolic suppression. So exercise most certainly matters, but now let's skip to his, his actual central premise, which is, okay, this was the study. Would these people have stayed lean? Would they have sustained their progress six months later, six years later, 15 years later? You know, we don't know. That's where his anthropology angle might come in uh, because we do know that genetics tend to pull us back into our recidivistic ways. We go back to where we were if, if we're not careful. So again, if you compared uh, calorie restriction and low calorie diets to calorie restriction plus exercise, this is the quote from the study. We observed a true, and they said actual surprising metabolic adaptation at three and six months. Adjusting for sedentary energy expenditure, total daily energy expenditure was significantly less than predicted, but no metabolic adaptation was observed in the calorie restriction plus exercise. <clears throat> so let's move on to another research review we did. And in this one, the science of the hormonal role of fat loss. I think we had another one called like just the science of hormones that may have been several um, um sessions, but this one alone, we reviewed something like five or six different studies. At least I mentioned them because I wanted to compare all of the hormones associated with fat loss. So most of the time we think of thyroid, 
Uh, we can certainly think of the catecholamine hormones, uh, um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which would be more exercise induced. Uh, again, I, at this point, this one was in 21 or 22, we were looking at metabolism as a set point theory. Uh, again, exercise, and then even androgens like testosterone that a lot of people think have to do with fat loss. So let's kind of breeze through these because I want you to see the mechanisms behind the metabolism. So this is one of my favorite studies. I, I, I bring this up to you guys probably once every couple months. So just to test the impact of thyroid hormone on fat loss and body composition, uh, they engaged 24 postmenopausal women with 25 to 30 BMIs. Uh, and so that was, you know, obese and, you know, not necessarily severely, severely obese, but you'll see that uh, by the end, the average had lost more than 44 pounds, but this is the way they set up the study, which I really liked. That's one of the reasons why I put so much stock in the study. There were four 10 day metabolic ward phases. So before, after, and two times in between, they had these ladies come in for 10 days and they were inpatients. They were tested, uh, their blood, blood was drawn, they, you know, all kinds of metabolic cart testing just to see exactly what their metabolisms were so they could measure change throughout the studies. Uh, then what they did was they wanted everyone to reach below 25 BMI. And so people finished within three months and the final people finished within five months. So they just kind of went at their own pace. Um, well, I shouldn't say went at their own pace. They, they were actually given food intake, again, you know, supplied to them, self-reported when they weren't in patients. Uh, but, but all that was monitored as well as possible. They were looking at all the different thyroid hormones, T3 specifically. And here's what happened. This is what was amazing. This is, this is why this punches me in the face so much as a study. Every single one of these women, except one outlier, so 23 out of 24, I think, it may have even been 24 out of 24, their, their resting metabolic rates dropped 6% within 10 days. And there was a 6% drop in thyroid hormone output. So it was perfectly correlated to thyroid. What we consume dictates how much thyroid hormone we need to process that calorically. That makes sense. But the fact that they all almost like talk about programmed DNA, talk about species wide 21st century homo sapiens, where every single person dropped 6% in 10 days, they never dropped any lower. Their resting metabolic rates and their thyroid hormones stayed at 6% deficit the whole way through. And then within 10 days of maintenance, when they finished the study and they had their final 10-day metabolic ward inpatient stay, they all came back up the full 6%. So as soon as food was right back up to caloric maintenance levels, their metabolism at three to five months from a thyroid perspective was fully recovered. That is remarkable information for us. And what you need to understand is that uh, with, with just normal standard dietetic type dieting, you didn't have to worry about your metabolism quote being broken or, or adapting in a negative way or being suppressed. These women, like, again, like I said, lost an average of almost 45 pounds. So that's the impact of thyroid. And 
there's not that much you can do with that, except make sure, as we saw in the previous study, don't go to a very low calorie diet. Don't calorie restrict lower than you should. And you'll probably hit, you know, a typical homeostatic drop in thyroid output and, and 6% drop in metabolism. That's just to be expected. But also remember from that previous study, we showed at six months, people who were exercising pretty aggressively, three sessions a week, supervised, so coaches, trainers, making sure intensity was there, their metabolisms didn't go down at all. Not thyroid specific, but just in general. So now we have two techniques we know uh, that can help support normal metabolic health. One, exercise as part of your calorie deficit. Two, make sure you don't diet too low. Just don't target too low of an intake. But now I want to I want to turn over to the next phase, which is looking at the role of exercise. Exercise is one of the major links between the hormonal modulators of energy intake and output. It appears that the sympathetic nervous system and the catecholamines are key components facilitating lipolytic activity during exercise, using fat as energy. Although the physiological role of the endocrine system during exercise and training is significant, other training effects may have as great or greater influence on lipolytic activity in adipose tissue, again, body fat. So again, the catecholamines are adrenaline-based hormones, epinephrine, norepinephrine. They are released when you're moving. Um, and so here's, if, if you want to get more of those, because I'm going to show you evidence that of all of the hormonal changes we can modulate or have any impact on, this is where you get the most bang for your buck. If you train intensely, and so remember, this is another study I love to quote, and I'm talking eight seconds high intensity intervals with 12 second pullbacks for as much as 20 minutes. And they recommend you start with just one minute, increase to two minutes, increase to three minutes, just increase as you can. But they found in this study that there's about a 20 minute max. Like once you get to that point, your body actually starts pulling back again, homeostasis uh, to conserve energy. But here's what happened. When you do this kind of high intensity, all out type training, growth hormone increases up to a thousand percent still an hour later. These catecholamine hormones that drive lipolytic activity, fat loss the most, are up 600 and 1400% respectively. VO2 max increases up to 13% in two weeks, 41% in 12 to 24 weeks, increased cardiac stroke volume, aerobic capacity increases 28% in eight weeks, 48% reduction in fat, compared to 18% in those who are doing the same amount of cardio, but in steady state. So you hear a lot of people say, yeah, I see these ads all the time. Um, how I walked my way to fat loss. You don't have to do hard exercise. Just walk, 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 walk. Absolutely walk. That's great non-exercise thermogenic activity. But it's not exercise. It's not training. It's not creating these types of metabolic pressures to increase your rate of fat loss. So if you want to lose body fat 600 to 1400% faster, um, you know, do some hard training and do it in this interval fashion. And the reason that 20 minutes is, is effective, we talked earlier about the different energy systems. 
when I'm going all out, if I do an eight second sprint on my assault bike or a jog on the treadmill or even burpees, whatever, um, you know, that's ATP. I'm using energy available instantly to that muscle tissue. Then I pull back for 12 seconds to let that ATP resynthesize. And I do it again and I back off and I do it again and I back off. Now you're getting into the glycolytic energy system. Now you're starting to use carbs or glucose to replace that ATP. And then you do that for longer than two to three minutes. And now you're getting into oxygen debt. And so you're moving, you know, from, you know, uh, you know, ATP to glucose to oxygen. Now you're covering all the energy systems in one short workout. So again, in eight weeks, 48% reduction in body fat compared to 18% in steady state. Um, so this hormone summary, uh, I didn't even include any quotes or any of the studies from the testosterone and androgens, because when people think, you know, I'm going to take some testosterone replacement, I'm going to start, you know, using anabolic steroids or even just a therapeutic amount to bring my testosterone up. Um, I think it's a great thing that now doctors are doing for women instead of just trying to control estrogen and progesterone, but they just don't play any role in fat loss. They just don't. Your testosterone can be high or low. It doesn't change fat loss. It's all in the epinephrine and norepinephrine and then human growth hormone, which is also very exercise driven. Then thyroid has a strong effect, but again, a very stable and recoverable effect. And so that's, that's the whole ball game. You know, that's the acute way you change and protect your metabolism. So just as a series summary, we started out with just looking at Dr. Ponser. I think that's his name. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but his book is Burn. Um, I'm not saying don't buy the book. I'm not saying don't look at the guy. I love evolutionary anthropology. I'm jealous that he's even at Duke University teaching this as a professor and researching it. That's a phenomenal role to be in. I just think because he's not necessarily a physiologist, an evolutionary anthropologist isn't always looking at biology. He's looking at the anthropological, cultural uh, impacts. He just was kind of out of his lane. But anyway, me metabolism is as dominantly genetic as genetics can be. You're just not going to change your metabolism genetically, but you can, you can fine tune it. Homeostatic suppression can, can occur acutely and chronically. So remember in those very low calorie diets, you can definitely suppress your metabolism for a short period of time. It will also recover, you know, unless you really do, you, you could be, you could be a rare, rare, rare case where you do something so severely like you were a 60 pound anorexic or something like that. And that can have some epigenetic uh, transference issues. Most of us are not going to do that. Homeostatic recovery is the rule. So most of us, as I said, you know, we're going to rebound from that. Uh, even somebody like in physique sport, we've talked a lot about this lately. How long can you be super lean under your metabolic set point and so forth? Around 12 plus months, you really start hitting a law of diminishing returns. And you're, you're just, you, that's when you see chronic suppression of your metabolism. You start losing lean body mass. Uh, but again, it's exercise is preserving that and hopefully you toggling your energy intake if you're in that position, uh, even for maintenance. Like if I'm, if I'm just trying to stay, 
as lean as I can be, but still within a healthy range for my genetics, I still will benefit from some fluctuations in my calorie intake to make sure this system is, is active. Uh, exercise preserves lean body mass metabolism. Hormonally, exercise is where you're going to see all of the drive for fat loss. Total energy deficit is still king. Remember, calorie restriction, calorie restriction plus exercise for the same calorie deficit got us to the same place. But again, it's only when you add the hard exercise that you get more fat loss and suppress or, or, or sustain your metabolism. So finally, contextual attempts at fat loss methodology matter, how we do this, how we approach diet, how we're going to you know, choose the, the diet practices we're going to engage with. But genetics are still genetic. We're just, we're just not going to become somebody different. Maintaining, this is a key point, maintaining our body composition is a different playing field than what it took to lose. There's a whole different set of disciplines psychologically it takes to say, okay, maybe I was motivated to drive down and lose body fat. Now, am I motivated to sustain that, especially if my genetics aren't necessarily favorable for that phenotype? So it, it's still you versus you on a daily basis, hopefully to a point where you get comfortable enough with new habits and even though your genetics don't change to all of a sudden make it easy for you, if it's not genetically easy for you, it's still something you can manage as we all have. You know, those of us who are prone to obesity, we have those genes and yet we're not expressing those genes. That's just, just daily discipline, daily work. But let me turn this back over to you guys. Um, I, I think this information we went through with this three-part series along with some of the other things we've done on hormones and metabolism, really give us a pretty full view of, of what's at play. But for those of you medical professionals, uh, if you have anything to add here that would make it more understandable, let's hear it. Come on, Amy. Oh, I don't think it's more complex. I mean, just, I this is something I always remind patients of, you know, that the outside of your body can heal really quickly, right? Oh, my, my incision is closed. I must be fully healed. Why am I still swollen? Why am I still this? Why am I still that? Because there's so much going on on a, on a millisecond by millisecond basis within the body that if you had to actively think about that, you wouldn't, your, your brain would like explode. So you think, okay, all of these things are happening. I'm managing my metabolism. I'm having conscious thought. Now I'm adding an injury or recovery to this. I mean, it is unbelievable what is happening in our cells on a, on a, you know, every single second of every single day that there's millions of things happening within every single cell, you know, so it, it does then show where that frustration comes in when someone's like, oh, my metabolism is broken, or I broke my metabolism, or I need to fix or reset my metabolism, because there is so much going on. But then people also really, I think, overthink it on the other side. Because with that 6%, I mean, if you take a person who's eating 1500 calories a day, 6% of that is not even 100 calories that their metabolism was factually downregulated. So you see why exercise then is so powerful because 90 calories on the, even like on the dread, the treadmill, you know, is a, is not that long. It's 10 minutes, you know, so that small amount of activity can really offset any type of downregulation. Um, but, you know, I think we all then start to like overcompensate in our own mind, like, oh, well, it's, it's bad. So then I have to do these extreme measures to make it better. And, 
you know, then you just get into gut problems and all the other things that you can have downregulation effects of. Um, but, you know, I think relying on the body to like do its magic is important and giving it the time to kind of catch up, especially after, you know, massive dieting phases, or if you are really fighting your potential genetics for obesity, like, you know, you and Kevin are both so versed in, you know, it's, uh, might be a fight, but it's not an insurmountable fight by any means. Yeah. Well, well highlighted there. And, and you mentioning Kevin, I want to tag him in uh, the fact that Kevin, you lost more than 120 pounds and you've now kept it off for more than a decade. It, it, it always interests me to see what your perspective is and if you think you could validate it physiologically, because there is some discussion now that we can kind of overemphasize phenotypes like endomorph versus ectomorph and so forth. Um, do you feel like that hundred pounds for you was kind of the genetic driver? Like it just happened or were you really overeating in a depressive way where it's, it wasn't even comfortable for you? And then the second half of my question is, since you lost that much weight and you have been so successful keeping off, and I mean, I don't even see a single like wrinkle on your abs. Like you, you look like you were destined to be lean. So genetically, do you feel like you're comfortable or is it still kind of a struggle? Are you tempted to go eat a gallon of ice cream every night? I definitely had the, definitely was overconsuming. I started gaining weight drastically in late high school and I worked at two restaurants and anytime there's extra pizza or made a mistake and created more breadsticks, well, I'm going to eat the shit out of that. And it's just, I'm, I'm 16, 17, 18. I'm invincible. I'll, I'll deal with it later as I would just tell myself and it's good food. It's pizza and steakhouse. Like I'm, I'm not going to deny any of that anytime I'm being offered or there's just excess, it'll be thrown away ultimately. So I just ate it. Um, and I'm sure there was some behavioral cuteness where like people would call me a teddy bear because of my, my appearance. And that just kind of enabled things and blah, blah, blah. But, um, I wouldn't say I had a, there I wouldn't say there was a, a heavy emphasis on emotional type of distress of over-consuming in that way. Sure, I've gone through breakups. That was depressing, but it never drove me to the point of excessiveness and indulgence in that way. I was just simply, Loving I like food. food. I was Italian. I'll just eat. Um, do, do you see that in, your, in, in your recent family members, ancestors? Do, do other people in your family struggle with obesity or not? Not to, I wouldn't say not to my degree in a sense of relative obesity. Sure, there's overweightness in pockets of family, but I would say I I probably exhibited the greatest distraught of like wow you know you know I'm I'm unhealthy. Um, behave there's similar behaviors of grazing and just Italian niceness of you know offering and eating to not be rude, et cetera. And that just leads to the behavioral mechanics of overeating over time. But that was probably, you know, my biggest thing was just the age immaturity and just food and grazing and overeating over time and just being an asshole. You know, I wasn't sensible. 
And as, as a doctor of nursing practice, professor, and somebody who accomplished what you did, do, do you link all, all the, the research stuff that we've gone over, the studies, the physiological information to your process? Do you say like, yeah, that's exactly how that happened, or maybe I did it a little bit differently? How do you connect those dots? I'll probably need more time to dwell on that and connect the pieces, but um, yeah, I was of the adage prior to when you first mentioned the thyroid study months ago that it whatever you however long it took you to lose from a thyroid down regulation it would take the equal amount of time to upregulate to recover from that um there was no evidence necessarily for it i just figured that just made logical sense it took you 9 months to to get to where you were probably take 9 months to recover from that from a thyroid metabolic standpoint and Perhaps that is true to a degree, I suppose, but from a purely thyroid empirical stat, it's just, it's not that significant at all. Uh, we hear that a lot now, and I think it's mostly from the physique sport culture. So perhaps these women who simply went from like 30 BMI to 25, they were still far enough above their metabolic set points that that recovery was quicker. It yeah. would be interesting looking at somebody who, you know, like, Amy, also a medical professional who has recently lost 35 pounds and she's at 9% body fat. So statistically, would her T3, T4 only have come down 6%? I don't know. Would, would it recover in 10 days? I don't know. But I mean, I certainly give it the allowance anecdotally, but a lot of physique sport athletes say, yeah, it took me like six months. I felt like shit. I was still kind of working my way out, but to feel all the way back to normal, it may take longer for people that lean. And I wonder if when you get to a threshold of going below the set point, if that's where it then bleeds into adaptation suppression and what that, and if there is a new cutoff or a new threshold at that level, but it that's a good point. And I'll, to answer your second part then real quick, as far as my own insecurity of my, you know, my body, my, my look, that's, never going to go away. I'm still probably just as insecure. No reason to be. It's just, that's just also self-deprecating. Yeah. Not bald aren't, and sexy. Aren't, aren't we all? Uh, I did a little reading this last week on dysmorphia and uh, it's, it's just crushing. Like we all just don't have it together when it comes to that. But um, you, you know, one of the things I wanted to say too, in terms of, the metabolic set points in these different specialized populations. Uh, it, it's just rare. Like you, we don't deal with a lot of there's, there's such a tiny fraction of a percent who do super aggressive physique sport work. And I do think in the next decade, there will be a lot of research on things specialized to that population because there are so many people in labs and universities who engage in that doing the research so I think we'll definitely have some answers to that soon. Are we, we going to jump back in, Amy? Well, I, I just had kind of two other thoughts. I mean, talking about like downregulation and specifically like thyroid and other types of hormones and the, the refractory rate or the recovery rate from those, you know, it would seem like from an evolutionary standpoint, there would be two things that would almost happen. Like when you start to refeed that there would almost be like a somewhat of a delay but it would, it would seem logical. And I don't know if this is how, you know, clearly it doesn't actually work this way, but that once your body kind of got to that place of safety, especially with things like cortisol and other stress hormones, that perhaps that recovery would actually 
more rapidly increase. And I think you see that specifically with women who are struggling with like um, hypothalamic amenorrhea, you know, that they need to manage their stress as much as they need to manage anything else. Like they might be at a healthy body fat, but like that stress component really plays a role. So I think with, you know, extremes, perhaps when, you know, how much, how a person can come out of that extreme mentally, emotionally, stress-wise might impact how long it takes them to recover physically, you know, physically as well. You know, the athlete who comes out and is like, wow, like sucking every day and or yo-yoing really hardcore, like going back and forth so much that their metabolism and their body's like, wow, we don't really know what's happening. We got a lot of overfeeding, but then we're back to starving. And, you know, that that might delay their recovery. Whereas like a slower ramp that, that happens at a more steady pace, allowing your body to kind of slowly catch up with you might actually shorten your overall recovery time. Interesting that you link those two together instantly. I could see your brain working. Um, you hesitated to anthropomorphize your body. Like, does your body think it's safe? Your, your cells are just reacting to what's there. So they don't. But then you immediately went to, well, stress and the feeling of safety and cortisol and like, okay, I'm in this diet. I'm sustaining it now. I feel good. I'm kind of in my normal daily routine that can definitely have a psychological effect on those biological processes. So yeah, those two, two, two well played. Don, are you going to jump in here? Oh. You're always driving. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm usually going someplace. <laughs> um, oh, it was great. By the way, re really, really great series and uh, um, magnificent uh, studies. I jumped in a little bit late, but the, the last two studies and the last one in particular, um, uh, uh, Joseph, the, the, the thing, my mind is always expanded with you. Um, and, and, you know, my clinical experience over the past three decades are, are, um, as, as all of us, you know, always being refined. So one of my thoughts, just on the aspect of metabolism and, um, um, several thoughts here. One is, I mean, a Gaussian distribution is, is always uh, uh, the reality, right? Um, you know, shift all the way to, to one side is death. As far as metabolism, it goes to zero. And then to the right, you know, what is that? Um, I, uh, I personally, of course, have seen in, in, in most people that I'll see are dysfunctional to disease. And um, uh, just as an example within the hormones, I mean, we didn't speak into cortisol, Amy did, and the, uh, uh, I've seen it with high stressed humans, particularly in the financial world, um, where, uh, and, and some of them were uh, high performing athletes, cyclists, things along those lines, intense, intense exercise. One, uh, he was the former CFO of uh, Goldman Sachs, and uh, he was a big man. Uh, couldn't get him down past, I don't know, it was 260, but cycled uh, at a very high level. Um, trainers and metabolic carts and you name it. Um, and I told him about stress and looking at modifying that. He said, I perform great under stress. I'm fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, he retired and I think he lost 25 pounds, you know, in like two months without really trying. And, uh, so, you know, the aspect of cortisol, the aspect of stress, of course, my area, autonomic nervous system. Um, so the aspect of metabolic shifting, uh, 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 whether uh, reality of starvation or 
in my, my you know, uh, uh, sarcopenic obesity, the aspect that the body might think it's starving, um, and of course, in, and resetting. Um, all of these things pop into my head. So it's always, what's the, what's the, the norm of, of the individual being tested? And the last study you put in, though, it, it, for me, would be, well, all these women are, are, if they're obese, there's dysfunction. And yet, every single one of them, I think that's why I say it's your favorite study. I think it's going to rapidly become mine, um, that, that they were, uh, you know, uh, they showed a, um, a commonality, uh, a, a molecular commonality. So um, I, I just find, I just, I, I find it all in, incredibly uh, uh, interesting. And I, and there's a, there's a bigger story here uh, that, that you're, um, I don't exactly know what the bigger story is, Joseph, but, but your uh, uh, defining is, is uh, uh, to me, has been a, is kind of a, a big way of, of, of getting to that bigger story. So thank you. That's- I, I appreciate that. You know, that curiosity and love of learning that I think we all share or we wouldn't be here is what keeps us driving to just learn more. What's, what's the next thing we can put into this puzzle? What's the next piece we don't already know? And, and I'll, I'll close with this, which is like with those women, I, I do think going by memory that 23 to 24 had exact results. And then one was a little bit of an outlier. And my, my Harvard statistics professor, so I've taken probably five or six stats and medical stats classes in my life. And that was by far the hardest. And uh, she said, you know, we always want to think, well, that one person, that one outlier was like something, something happened. And so let's not include that. Let's just ignore it. Let's look at the, the herd. And she said, that may be where the story is. Like that may be like the thing to look at. Like, why did that person have such a different result? And maybe there's something even more important to learn there. So just to say that, you know, it's always worth looking. And even as I started this particular series talking about Dr. Ponser's book, and I try to be as tactful as I can to say, I like the guy, he's smart, I love his work, but I just think he's kind of wrong here. Um, you know, we do that to each other. That's what science is all about, is continuing to refine and interpret properly and put everything into context. So with that, I'll let you guys go. And uh We'll see you next week. We may take a week off in between to start getting ready for another behavioral type series, but I'll let you know for sure. Uh, for now, you guys have a great rest of your Friday. I'll see you soon.